If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What can the life of one woman reveal about the experience of Jews in medieval England? Following the unveiling of a statue of Lucretia of Winchester earlier this year, Professor Miri Rubin, Dr Dean Irwin and Dr Tony Griffiths pieced together the story of this powerful Jewish businesswoman who was at the heart of medieval England's financial affairs. Speaking to Emily Griffith, they reveal what Lucretia's extraordinary story can tell us about religious coexistence in the Middle Ages. With the recent unveiling of a statue of Lucretia of Winchester in Hampshire this year, we thought it'd be really interesting to dive in and take a look at some medieval Jewish history. So hello to you all. It's an absolute pleasure to be chatting to you. Would you mind introducing yourselves and perhaps describe your avenues of research in a little bit more detail? Hello, I'm Tony Griffiths and I'm a visiting fellow at the Parks Institute at the University of Southampton. My research interests are, generally speaking, Jewish history and heritage, and that's had more of a focus on memory, medieval Jewish memory to be specific, and how that's been remembered in a public setting and also forgotten. Uh, My recent work includes a co-authored journal edition with Dean here, who you'll hear from in a moment, and we were looking at new approaches to medieval Jewish history. More recently, I'm now the Senior Outreach Officer at Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, a role that is separate but has been informed by my research interests. Hi, I'm Dean Irwin. I completed my PhD at Canterbury Christchurch University in 2020, and I'm much more interested in records than people. I I completed my thesis on the records generated by Jewish moneylending activities in the period 1194 to 1276 and have worked on pretty much all the classes of Latin records produced by or in relation to the Jews of medieval England. And like Tony said, I co-edited a volume with her earlier this year, which grew out a set of panels at the Leeds International Medieval Congress. And I talked about profit and interest in usury and lots of fun stuff like that. 
My name is Mary Rubin. I'm Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at the wonderful Queen Mary University of London. I'm currently also, I have the great honor of being the president of the Jewish Historical Society uh, of England. And my own work, um, I'm really interested in what it meant for Jews to live in Christian Europe. And I started my research several decades ago looking at medieval religion. And everywhere I went studying Christianity, I found that Christians are always talking about Jews. And most recently, I've tried to contribute to that question of how Jews experienced medieval Europe by writing about just how diverse medieval cities were. And that diversity included communities of Jews or traders and merchants who came and went who were Jews alongside other groups who were also touched by a sense of difference from those communities. So through the Jews, one can really, through studying the Jews, one can really just expand our idea of what that medieval past was. Thank you so much for your introductions. So to start us off, I'd like to talk about Licorice herself. So who was Licorice of Winchester and what sort of time are we talking about here? Uh, so we're talking about the 13th century, obviously the best of the centuries, uh, and Licorice was prob probably born at the early part of the, the, the century, uh, either in the, the first decade or, or shortly thereafter. Uh, we know almost nothing about her early life uh, beyond the fact that she was married um, to a man called Abraham of Kent or Abraham of Canterbury by the late 1220s uh, when he died and left her a widow. There are, there are two references to, to Licorice in the close roles of the 1230s. Uh, both relate to her money-lending activities, uh, but by and large she, she's absent from, from the early sources of the 1230s, and that's not at all uncommon. Um, sources only begin to, to survive in great numbers after the 1240s anyway, so we wouldn't really expect to see any Jew um, of, of that date um, with any kind of consistency in the roles. Uh, but she really comes onto the stage uh, in 1242 um, when she marries David of Oxford uh, and that presents a whole range of issues and controversies largely because until as late as the 27th of October 1242 David was married to another woman. Um, which, which is never a good thing when you decide you're going to marry someone else but particularly so in the 13th century. Um, and David uh, do, does what you do in that situation. He seeks divorce um, which is easier for a Jew to do in this period than a Christian. And the English authorities, the Beftin, the rabbinical um, court of England, seem to have allowed this. Uh, Muriel, in contrast, was not very happy with the, the move, uh, whether it was because uh, David would, would be leaving a financially less secure or, or, or there was a general, general sense of affection there. Um, and she appealed um, to a Parisian court in, in order to, to get the marriage reinstated. Um, from a marital perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Um, from a political sense, it was probably very stupid. Um, the, the, the King of France, Louis IX, had beat um, Henry III, King of England, um, in a series of uh, humiliating defeats uh, in a French campaign in July 1242. So the fact that the Jews of England... Uh, were appealing to, to a court directly under his jurisdiction, did not go down well at all. Henry III is very angry 
uh, with what has gone on. Uh, and David of Oxford uh, presumably knew that he would be when he appealed um, to Henry at Bordeaux. Um, and Henry's response was fairly fairly uh, predictable. He reinforced uh, the um, ruling of the English Beth Din. He allowed David to marry whomsoever he wished, or if he didn't want to marry anyone, he didn't have to. Um, and he also forbade the holding of Jewish courts in England without royal consent, um, something which was largely reduced in, in the later decades of the 13th century, but in the 1240s he was very angry, and it took him a long time to calm down. And then the order as well, Muriel of Oxford is summoned to, to answer for what she's done before the English justicia in her in Henry's absence, uh, and basically Muriel's in all the trouble, Licoretia is free to to marry uh, David of Oxford, um, which they promptly do. There's no sense of um, taking a break between marriages. It, it, it seems to have been done fairly quickly. Uh, but any sense of marital bliss, if there was any, uh, expired fairly quickly, along with David in 1244, who died uh, in that year. And this gives um, Licoretia an incredibly long widowhood during which she had both her own financial estate and that of David of Oxford um, to really enjoy life. Um, uh, but also she is incredibly active as a, as a financier. We gather she appears only four times in the, the financial record, so it's difficult to tell, uh, but she appears frequently in the plea roles of the Exchequer of the Jews uh, and is incredibly litigious over that um, period uh, up until her death uh, in 1277. But she seems to have remained in Winchester after David's death, acting as a financier. Uh, she was known to the leading members of the royal court, uh, including Henry III. And really, she just went on being an incredible woman throughout the, the final decades of the 13th century, until in 1277, uh, she was discovered dead with a Christian nursemaid in her house uh, in Winchester. And thus ends the story of Licoretia. That was an amazing uh, summary of an amazing life. But although she was amazing, there are so many things about her life that we might savor that are about women in the period, to some extent, even women wherever. First of all, she was a mum. She was a mum a, in a blended family. Blended families are very, very common then, as they are now. So she had the children from the first marriage, very close to them. And then she had the little darling who was born from the very, very short marriage with uh, with David, who actually lived on and is another interesting character. So um, that strikes me as just um, worth mentioning. But um, also just the name itself, Licorisha, Licorice. It's really, really common amongst the um, Jewish women of England whose ancestors had come and continued to come over from France. Of course, they first arrived from Normandy with the Conqueror in the 11th century, and then there was a very lively contact with parts of France throughout the 12th and 13th centuries. And the language, one of the languages much spoken was indeed the French of Northern France, the Longue d'Oeil. And uh, these names, they're always about, they're not your sort of Esthers and Rachels, although they also had those names. The vernacular names by which people were called were these extraordinary names about sweetness, about savor. 
And well, licorice combines the two, doesn't it? And I always wonder about these women, you know, how they live up to their names or how their names sort of inspire them to a certain type of grace and self-fashioning. How common or uncommon would you say licorice's life is in comparison to other Jews in medieval England and beyond? So it's typical in as much as every aspect of existence of the Jews of England in the medieval period until the expulsion of 1290 is scrutinized by the crown. It's scrutinized by the crown because there is a sort of arrangement whereby the Jews are there, their very existence in England is associated with royal patronage, their their right to be there, protection of their person and property is all through the scrutiny of royal officials. So if you live, say, in Norwich, it'll be the sheriff of Norwich who deals with you and looks out for you, also exacts payments, also enacts uh, judgments that can be painful. But there is this very close relationship, both real and imagined, with the crown. And that goes back to all sorts of interesting ideas about sacred kingship that we won't go into here. And it's true also of other uh, dynastic units in uh, in Europe, say the Kingdom of Poland or Hungary or France, the kingdoms of Iberia. In city-states, it looks different because it doesn't have, so when Jews live in an Italian city, it's not in the same political culture. But the political culture of these dynastic kingdoms really see the Jews almost like a department of state of a dynastic kingdom. And that has good sides, and bad sides. But what it also means is that when somebody like David needs support, he just goes to the king. It's obvious that you go to the king, even against the rabbis who run, uh, the Jewish grandees who run the local court, as Dean has described. So there is this really deep relationship that is vexed, that is intimate. It can be good, it can be bad, but it's very, very strong. More, say, perhaps than a serf on a manner uh, somewhere imagines his or her access to the crown being. This is a much more tried and tested relationship with lots of very clear pathways mediating between the Jews and the crown and its offices. And another thing that's very uh, typical, I think, although she was very grand and she was rich and so on, is this existence of Jews who are like totally embedded. These are English Jews, even if they travel to France, etc. It's all one kingdom. They're familiar with the locality, with the local foods, with the weather, I dare say, with the roads, with the political culture, with everything. So they're settled. And yet there is this utter, utter vulnerability. Things can go, well, life is always up and down. But for the Jews, it's more so. And I think that end of this woman's life with the mystery of a knife in her heart sort of captures it, that never knowing. And what that takes, what toll that takes of people in terms of their mental health, in terms of their emotional experience, is something really hard to get at, but definitely worth considering. Uh, and I'd just come in on that and say that Licaricia is absolutely exceptional. We think of the Jews, uh, but in fact, there were a wide range of Jews encompassed in that. And really, the top six or seven Jews at any one time were the richest. And the fact that David has such access 
to Henry III to, to go and say, can I have this divorce, please? It's no accident that he's the second richest Jew in England at the time that he goes and does that. Equally, Licaricia, uh, throughout her widowhood, lives in a level of uh, richness, which is simply not available to the vast majority of the, the Jews. Uh, and I've argued um, that around, or the vast majority of middling Jews uh, would have had somewhere around 20% the income uh, of people like Licaricia and David. So they're just on a totally different level. And perhaps if we think of the Jews of England in the same way that we might think of the structure of English society, so barons at the top, um, um, knights and, and greater landholders in the middle, and then we've got the mercantile classes and the urban elites. And the Jews are urban uh, dwellers, but the, it's a very small minority of them who are urban elites. Um, so it's it's trying to break apart that the Jews' um, suggestions. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We could identify her potentially as a mother, as a, a business person, as somebody that has a story of, you know, potentially feeling othered. Um, those are all aspects that lots of different people in the contemporary communities can identify with. And so that's a way of engaging with history in a way that feels real and feels relevant. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I, I imagine that many of our listeners might be familiar with the persecution and later expulsion of Jews. But I really want to talk about this idea of where Jewish people fit in society and what opportunities we see them having. Could we talk a bit more widely about that? Okay, so um, as we've already heard from Dean, um, Jews were concentrated in the cities, although we also know that due to their travels and in the search of profit and work opportunities and business opportunities, particularly in the 13th century when life became harder and harder, we do know that they settled where in, in smaller towns, uh, in, 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 in border areas and places where they weren't supposed to be, as it were. And one can only imagine uh, what does it mean to be, to be, I don't know, four Jewish families in Abergavenny or in the 13th century. I mean, you know, sort of the mind boggles. I can imagine a community in, in, in Norwich or York or Cambridge or London, of course, but uh, so that already is there. But mostly they're sitting in county towns. Uh, in this relationship we've just described uh, with uh, um, royal officials. And within that world, they're meant to offer financial services, which can vary enormously from small subsistence loans to major investments in building projects, and building projects not just of people in the city, 
Famously, the Jews uh, help finance big building projects of, of monasteries, of uh, other religious institutions in particular, but also of gentry who invest on their own estates and have uh, needing money for big projects, particularly building projects. So all of that offers opportunities. But the fact that they cannot hold land within the system of land tenure that prevailed and was famously sort of revolutionized after the Norman conquest with a particular structure that people used to call feudal, but we might say landholders and under them, people who work on the land and all sorts of nested relationship. That world was not open to them because they're not, weren't meant to be landholders and they definitely weren't meant to have authority over Christians. Now, lands fell into Jewish hands when people failed to pay their loans, and if this was there as a surety or as a guarantee. But they really had to dispose of it quite quickly or encouraged to dispose of it quite quickly. So really the opportunities were in particular spheres, uh, less artisanal, more trade and commerce. And that was a very profitable domain. It's also a domain with a lot of risk, but it also means that they lived cheek by jowl, with other people doing similar things. So on the one hand, that meant that they were familiar with and and knew and probably had friendships with um, other uh, town dwellers at various levels of urban society. But it also means that um, they could be imagined as extraordinary sort of harmful exploiters by those who were not within that that uh, sector, the 10%, perhaps 8 to 10% of society that were connected with urban life. So who wouldn't know them and would imagine them uh, and could be preached at and could imbibe all sorts of ideas that were sort of outlandish. Now, I'm not suggesting that neighbors uh, are always friends because, of course, neighborhood and living side by side in the world of business and work also creates competition and a clash of interests, and we definitely see that. But I think it's um, remarkable that so many of the bursts of violence were perpetrated on Jews by people who were not your typical urban dwellers or commercial actors uh, who may have had a more, I wouldn't call it at all tolerant, I would just say more familiar and therefore more nuanced sense of what really how where Jews really sit within the society and do they really pose danger or is it just the competition between peers? I don't mean to go pretentious historian but I think context matters as well. So in the the monasteries and the great religious monastic houses, Jews who never been met, we approach these as the Christ killers increasingly from the 13th century. In the rural areas where we're learning about the Jews from pulpits, we get a similar impression. But in the towns, it's sort of that the the people that know you sort of have more trouble engaging with this idea um, that that Jews at least wholesale kill... and ritually murdered children every year. It it doesn't seem to catch on until the 14th and 15th centuries after the Jews have been expelled from England. But also we have some wonderful evidence of, if not Jewish engagement with activities that we'd expect to see um, uh, Christian elites doing, then certainly um, 
adjacent to that. So there's wonderful evidence at Lincoln, for example, uh, where Jews are granted um, hunting uh, birds. They are given annually one beast of the chase every year. Uh, so we can imagine these hunting activities for, for the leading Jews, although the evidence is difficult to come by. And also uh, we have wonderful evidence from the 1280s of food supply. So at Hereford, for example, lots of debts are, are, are to be repaid in geese, which is allowed equally. You get lots of payment in commodities such as wheat and wool, and the, these are the things that sustain uh, Jewish life. And as co- of course, we have uh, evidence of wine imports from Bordeaux be- produced in the Jewish custom, uh, but also the, the rabbinic evidence, uh, and Pinkas Roth has done important work on this, show, shows that uh, Jews and Christians do tend to go for a drink at the end of the working week, and it's difficult to say when that was in, in the 13th century context, but, but just go for a drink with each other. And it's always much more difficult to, to sort of want to kill someone uh, if you generally and regularly go drinking with them. Yes, there's another interesting area that can be much more explored, and that is the translation um, uh, into Hebrew, but also just the availability in French of um, you know what we might call secular literature, fables and romances and so on, for which, you know, Northern France was really producing, like was leading in that area and evidence of that existing also used by 13th century uh, English Jews. So they're participating. But again, the elite in this sort of all the possibilities of both um, um, entertainment, but material culture. I've always thought that, you know, Jews of a particular place would look more like their more like their neighbours than Jews from some the other end of Europe, as it were. And famously, in an early 13th century, very influential collection of um, of um, sort of moral maxims um, for Northern European Jews, written by a rabbi from early 13th century Germany. And one of the fa- one of the sort of moral moral lessons is, you know, you really have to choose where you go to settle as a Jew in search of business or protection or whatever, because within a generation or two, your kids and your grandkids definitely will sound and look and behave just like those locals. So, you know, don't go to a place that's famous for its sort of unruliness or or immorality. Go to a good place because they're going to turn up just like that. Yeah, so I think also there's a tendency to think that these were were simple questions. Jews like uh, Jews were Jews, and Christians hated Jews. And actually, we see that that's not the case when we look in local communities. So Robert Grossetest, Bishop of Lincoln, is a perfect example of that. In in the 1230s, he writes to Margaret de Quincey, uh, Dowager Countess of Winchester, to to argue uh, for her to support the expulsion of the Jews from Leicester, which Simon de Montfort famously did. But equally, later in his life, uh, he says uh, on his deathbed, for example, that Jews may lend money at interest, but they're not as bad as the Italian moneylenders. Um, and he also engages with Jews in the local context uh, of Lincoln. Uh, the, he's a, one of the great Hebraists um, uh, and engages with the local community. And I think we, we perhaps forget that in a national context, you have to give a um, very specific um impression of your thoughts of the Jews and we perhaps get a, a little bit more closer to the realities of people um, like Miri said tolerating each other uh, in the local context you may not like each other uh, but, but Jews are here for 200 years 
certainly it is not as short as time. Jews get integrated into culture uh, and uh, communities and networks, uh, which is very difficult um, to unravel them from. And it takes a full-blown act of expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290 to actually put an end to that until the 17th century. But I also think that observing this particular chapter of Jews in England, it really, um, it's it's not different from other contexts of um, sort of how you treat and how you think of people who in your culture have a certain aspect of difference to them. I mean, if we think of uh, immigrants to this country now, um, you know, people might be against immigration, but they're very, very fond of their particular neighbor who's from Poland or from Latvia. And people do inhabit these odd ways of not really testing themselves about their daily behavior in the light of sort of ideologies that they will not question and just uh, accept. And there's also a temporal that is a cha- uh, over, over a year, you might have times of the year where people are more or less thinking of the Jews as as others. When you think of the period of Lent, that is the 40 years that lead up to Easter, Easter being the pinnacle of the Christian year, obviously. Everybody's just thinking a little bit more about about their religious beliefs. They're being preached at mightily. They have to do penance. A lot of the stories are the build-up to the crucifixion, and people are encouraged to identify with Christ's terrible suffering on the cross, and that the Jews rejected him, and so on. This is what people are hearing. So it's possible that they might feel less inclined or more open to these sort of inimical visions of the Jews or ideas about Jews in that time of the year than in other times of the year. And thinking of the Jews in the abstract as the Jews, rather than my neighbor or my business partner, or the doctor who healed my child, or uh, the person who lent me money when I really needed it and didn't have much to give as a pawn. And, And it's that sort of complexity which really helps us also both think of ourselves in context, but also think about that past in a more nuanced and textured way, and I know that Tony has obviously thought about these issues a lot for more modern periods. Absolutely. And I think that the statue of Licoretia, for example, is sort of embodies this alternative way of thinking up until a certain point. The types of memory that we were seeing in a public context were really geared towards this sort of horrible histories or dark tourism approach. And so we saw a lot of the gorier details, a lot of focus on victimization, persecution and that sort of thing. But of course, the glaring absence here is the everyday life aspect, the fact that people did live alongside one another as neighbours. And whilst these parts of history are no undoubtedly really important and characterised, you know, much of the experience and, and awful at times, you think of the 1190 massacre at Clifford's Tower, in truly awful, awful situation. But there was a community in York thereafter And by focusing so much on these really awful situations, we have a tendency then to sort of overshadow the the other more um, nuanced aspects of the history, as Miri said. And I'm glad to say that the uh, change in direction towards this is, is common now. 
and we see at Clifford's Tower, for example, a more contextualised version of this history. It still includes that vital story, that important um, aspect of the history in 1190, but it adds the wider story um, of the Jews in that city and in England uh, more generally as well. And so we're getting, um, as I said, yeah, more contextualised versions of these histories. And that's really important, particularly from the public's perspective, because a lot of the times we'll find that the audience, this is their only access to this part of medieval Jewish history. It could be the first time they've heard of it in their local context or the broader sense. And so it's really important that when these sorts of histories in the public sense are being curated, that they are as nuanced as possible and do their best to incorporate the um, other the positive aspects as well as the negative aspects of these histories. Why do you think it's important then to perhaps draw out stories and examples and individual people from this vast narrative? Is it important to tell stories like Licorice's? Absolutely. I think particularly for the medieval Jewish um, story in England, because it helps people to not necessarily identify with these uh, characters of history. I mean, as Miri said, actually, we could identify her potentially as a mother, as a, a business person, um, as somebody that has a, an immig- uh, the story of, you know, potentially feeling othered. Um, those are all aspects that lots of different people in the contemporary communities can identify with. And so that's a way of engaging with history in a way that feels real and feels relevant. And particularly if they have no background in that, that can be a really great point of access. Um, And in terms of medieval Jewish history as well, I'm thinking about Winchester specifically, there's not much to see, unfortunately. And so when we think about public history, we think about walking tours and in this building, this thing took place and this part of history defined it. But unfortunately, there just isn't much available. And so work that I've done and, and spoken about in the past focuses on this almost uh, imaginary tour. And so it does require imagination from the public. We can say about the footprint of a building, for example, or find artistic uh, representation, but it doesn't necessarily um, find points. It's not as easy to to identify with if you physically can't see something. So by providing specific stories like this, it does find a real sort of access point and way in to talk about medieval Jewish history uh, more generally. But I think that the um, the reason it was uh, such a winner for Hampshire County Council was it was a woman, it was a non-Christian woman, and we knew quite a lot about her, so it's possible to, to create the teaching units and the various panels that are associated with her. But also it's business, it's the idea that Winchester was a you know, a centre, because people don't know. I mean, indeed, even a thousand years ago, Winchester was a really important financial centre before the Northern Conquest. But it's like bringing that all to life and in the figure of a woman, it's just was a very felicitous uh, coming together, I think. Dean, you were going to say? I, I was going to say something in response to Tony, but now I'm going to say something in bo- bo- response to both of you, is that, if I may. So, so in response to to Miri, I, I would perhaps say that we'd know more about Licaricia if she lived somewhere else. Um, Winchester peaks in the 12th century and is not one of the the really really important um, Jewish communities of the 13th century. It's very much a regional hub 
And that perhaps explains why um, Licarisha is absent from so many of the financial records, unlike at Lincoln or Hereford, where we do see women much more consistently. But on the, the point of stories um, that, that Tony raised as well, I'd just say, say perhaps that there's a long tradition from the 1920s onwards of really amazing women historians writing the history of England's medieval Jews. And the story of Licaretia is not just an important story in its own right. It's a dream of one, one of the great women uh, to write Anglo-Jewish history, Suzanne Bartlett, um, in a wonderful study of 2009, which was uh, published uh, posthumously regret- the story of Licorice is the, the story of Suzanne, Suzanne Bartlett's uh, love of Licorice as well. So with all that in mind, what would you like our listeners to take away from this episode? I think that one of the things that I'd like people to take away from this, this recording are really two things. One, that the Jews of medieval England are important and are worthy of study and engaging with. And whether that's good or bad or ugly, all three are there and you can find all three. And it's perhaps best... N- uh, to, to look for them rather than just looking for the negative because it's so easy to find what you're looking for in the, the annals of Anglo-Jewish history. And if you're looking for anti-Semitism, you'll find it. But in the process of doing so, you'll miss so much other wonderful uh, material um, which everyone in this conversation works on. Um, and, and I would su- sort of suggest that people actually start reading about the Jews of medieval England uh, a bit more. So Sue Bartlett book is obviously go to uh, Richard Huffscroft's Expulsion, England's Jewish Solution, is a really amazing introduction uh, to the Jews of medieval England and was the book that introduced me to the topic. And anything by Miri or Tony um, is just a wonderful way to while an evening. I mean, what I would like people to take away is that the Jews have a really long history in this country, but not just the Jews. That is, to think of their communities as having been diverse then. There was no time of just English people lonesome on the island. And oh, yes, then came some Normans and they were apart. Think of all the different communities. Think of the Welsh. Think of the Scots. Think of the Flemish, people from Flanders, from the low countries of today. I mean, you know, who just crossed the channel all the time, bringing goods, bringing their technological know-how, particularly in textile, and later on in the 17th century, of course, draining the fens of East Anglia. Think of this as a place of passage. People did not think of a channel as a separator. It was far safer and cheaper to cross the channel than to travel some of the roads of England at the time. People came and went. Sometimes they stayed and had blended families with locals. Sometimes they went back to where they came from. In the case of Jews, there were sort of extra complications because of the inherited attitudes. But nonetheless, it's really worthwhile thinking of the Jews of England as part of a continuum of diversity on these islands that goes back and is still with us, and I hope will stay with us. I would say um, to, to people visiting medieval Jewish heritage sites, uh, particularly in England, to go with an open mind to read and understand and digest what it is that's presented to you there, but also to consider the fact that there are other aspects at play 
when we're creating um, public facing history like this, there are so many things to take into consideration and things like word count can be a big part of that. And so just know that even though it's a fascinating part of the story, it could also be it is rather just one part of it. And so Licoretia is an incredible statue to go and see and to hear about her story, but know as well that as Dean already mentioned, she was extraordinary and that there were many other parts to the Jewish uh, medieval story. And I would say the same for when you are viewing negative uh, victimization, persecution stories. These are really significant, really important part of those particular um, characters, uh, those people's journeys. But there were good parts too. There was everyday life. And I would just encourage people to do as much reading around as possible. The speakers on today's podcast were Miri Rubin, Dean Irwin and Tony Griffiths. Professor Miri Rubin is a professor of medieval and early modern history at Queen Mary, University of London. Dr Dean Irwin is an independent scholar of medieval Anglo-Jewry. And Dr Tony Griffiths is a visiting fellow at the University of Southampton and senior outreach officer at the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 